0: about the history of your Islamic education. So my uh, education started primarily in Birmingham. Uh, I started works like Nahmir and Sarf and Small matoon with our teacher Rasul Bakh Saidi who is still based in Birmingham and finished. In fact, one of the first works I read was Muqaddimah to Sheikh of a Abdul Haq, uh, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. Uh, this was in around the year 98. So around the time when I delivered the lecture here and then um, I went to Damascus Damascus University to cover the language course they had a one year language course before the war I finished the language course in Damascus University and then I finished books like Nur al-Lidah Al-Quduri, um, Matmu Quduri, Al-Hidayah Nur al-Anwar, Usul al-Shashi, Nurul al-Anwar Al-Husami, muntakhab al-Husami and uh, we, in Aqeedah we done Badul uh, Amali with the commentary of Mullah al Rahim Allah and uh, books of other literature like Min Al Khulud of sheik Salih Al-Farfur and many, uh, uh, In Nahaw uh, the standard course Sharh Miyati Amil Hidat Al-Nahaw Matam Al-Kafi and Mullah Jami and then uh, from that time then I went back to Syria So when I went back to Syria, uh, I studied, there was a point two years in Syria, the year from late 2004 up to uh, within 2006, within this period there was a time when I had 20 durus a week with various shiugh. And this is excluding the Majalis al-Dhikr that I would attend. I would attend so many Majalis al-Dhikr that some people who didn't know I had 20 dhrus a week, they thought I was doing more dhikr than I was studying. Ma sha Allah. But alhamdulillah, that was very beneficial because I would attend the dhikr of Sheikh Taj
1: uh,
0: Al-Kattani, rahim Allah, the son Allah. of Sayyid Makki Al-Kattani, Ma Sheikh Ahmad Al-Habbal, rahim Allah, and then the Shadili dhikr in the, uh, the Nuriya that happens every Jummah after the Jummah prayer. So I would attend the Majalis al-Dhikr. But during that period of two years, of 20 dars a week, I studied works like Kashf al-Haqaiq of Abdul Hakim al-Afghani, Maraq al-Falah, Sharh al-Rahabiyya in Miraf, muqaddimah Ibn al-Salah. We completed uh, these books. And then some of the Darib al-Rabi, the Muqaddima of the Hashia Ibn al uh, the the muqaddimah of sharh sahih muslim of imam al nawawi Shah al-waraqat اعلامه لنا من الشيخ with Sheikh Nuruddin Etr every friday in the Jami Shamsiya Maşallah. in the Maşallah. Muhajirin district the muhajirin di- district is the area where Sheikh Muhammad Al-Hashimi rahimahullah lived Maşallah. and then uh, so uh, i've mentioned nine books to you like this, if you counted all the books and the number of the rules, it would be about 20 for two years, mustamir. And then uh, I returned back in 2006 for a short period, and in that period I studied with, with the same teacher and another teacher, I studied some of the uh, additional dars nizami books. And then I went back in 2007, and to, up to 2008, and uh, studied Mazid with the Mashaykh in Damascus. I returned back in 2008. And then I stayed studying with my teachers for four more additional years and teaching under the instruction as well. So not just studying, I would teach. So I started teaching from that time until now to this day.
1: Alhamdulillah, that's just a brief history of my studies. MashaAllah. Tremendous dedication that we're benefiting from today. One final question regarding your studies. If you could go back... In time and meet yourself again, would you give yourself what advice would you give yourself for the benefit of students of knowledge here? That if you were to restart your education knowing what you know now, your experience studying the ulama, what advice would you give to yourself?
0: You see, this question has passed my mind, but I avoided responding to the question because the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Qadar wanted, uh, willed to mold me is how He willed to mold me. So, if I go back in hindsight and things think to myself, I could have done this like this or this like that, then I'm, I'm happy with the qada, qada and qadr of Allah. So, yes, I could, if I went back in a time machine, theoretically, there, there are a few things I would have done differently. But then I'm happy with the qada and qadr of Allah because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala molds us through our personal experiences in the way He wills. So sometimes people will go through an experience which they deem as being bad, but in reality everything is good because it's from Allah. And if we do not go undergo that experience, for instance, there was from that period of nineteen ninety seven till two thousand and one, it was difficult studying because sometimes the teacher would uh, give me a copy of Nahmir in Farsi mm-hmm. and I still joke with my teacher regarding this. Mm-hmm. A copy of uh, Nahmir in Farsi, mm-hmm. he's teaching me in Urdu and then I have to, as a British-born child, I have to, uh, whose first language is not Urdu, it's uh, English and Mirbri, mm-hmm. I have to process the Urdu, technical Urdu, and then make sense of the Farsi text. So this process, I would not have studied as quick as a student studying under me. Children now can finish Nahmir under me because I teach them in English and very quickly within a few weeks. But the process of studying was different then. And then sometimes walking miles to the class. So now children do not accept... Uh, to attend a class if the (coughs) class is far away. What do they say? We need a lift to the class, a car ride to the class. But now when I look back, that molded my mind. Because benefiting from the the handwritten lithographic editions of works, I can go and look at manuscripts. So if someone took me to a manuscript uh, museum, I could read decipher manuscripts. But a person who's trained on modern books, sometimes they're unable. So this is the benefit. I understand Urdu completely. I speak Urdu and I read Urdu. Farsi is very easy for me to to decipher Farsi texts. That's the benefit. But I went under hardship in studying. So if I went back in time, I wouldn't change anything. In that sense. So there's always benefit of even the, those things we deem as being hardship in our lives. And this will relate to the book in terms of what is referred to as the problem of evil. That people see as evil uh, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has willed for them.
1: Maşallah, wa I think it's important for us to appreciate, especially as listeners myself, as a student learning, that we often benefit from the fruits of a person. But we don't see their hard labour, like walking to the masjid when nobody's there at night, sleepless nights, studying, learning. Often people put a tremendous amount of effort in and at the end we benefit from the fruits. So it's really important that for the Sunni audience that we appreciate, mashallah, the hard work the city has gone for, inshallah, to learn the religion, not just in the UK, but multiple trips abroad, for us to sit here today, inshallah, and benefit from the fruits. So inshallah, moving on to the topic of our discussion today. The topic is Sunni Kalam and Modern Atheism. So to start off with, what is Sunni Kalam, definition of Sunni Kalam?
0: Sunni Kalam, we would say, is the development of rational arguments against the detractors of Islam. So people who opposed Islam in the early centuries, from the time of the Sahaba Ali Muridwan, you had the development of argumentation countering the arguments of the enemies of islam and that development became known as kalam now kalam in its original designation they even dispute why the word kalam was designated some of them say it was because it related to the kalamullah because one of the early disputes that they had with the mu'tazila was that the mu'tazila denied that the quran is the kalam of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so this became a point of dispute so the science to counter their arguments became known as Ilmul Kalam in reference to Kalamullah, Al al While others said excessive Kalam, excessive speech is involved in dialectics, in debating the opponent, therefore the science became known as Ilmul Kalam. Not to be confused with the Ilmul Kalam of the Mu'tazila and the philosophers, which was condemned by Imam Shafi'i. The early Salaf, salaf al Salihun, they condemned Kalam. Which Kalam did they condemn? Uh, As ibn Asaqir Rahimullah, points out in Tabiyyoun al Al-Muftari, they were condemning the Kalam of the Mu'tazila, the Kalam of the philosophers. So if you ever read statements of Al-Imam Malik or imam Shafi'i condemning Kalam, they are not condemning Sunni Kalam. Otherwise, Sunni Kalam was utilized by the salaf what do i mean argumentation now some people they confuse that with the philosophical usage uh, or the terms philosophical terms that are utilized by sunni in the later development of kalam from the time of al-imam al-juwaini al-imam abu Habid al-ghazali who passed away in 505 hijri and onwards al-imam fakhruddin al-razi who passed away in 606 hijri these ulama they utilize philosophical terms, so some people think the Sunni kalam is actually philosophy. Mm-hmm. When in reality, it's a refutation of philosophy. It's not a uh, commendation of philosophy. It's not commending philosophy. It's a, actually a condemnation of philosophy. And therefore, Al-Imam Abu Hamid al Ghazali's work, Tahafut al Falasifa, the incoherence of the philosophers. So, the Sunni Mutakallimeen, the era, have always been opponents of philosophy or philosophical thought. They always dismantled philosophical arguments. And that is the relevance of Kalam today. Okay. That Kalam has a relevance today.
1: Speaking about Kalam today, the first chapter of Islam and Atheism. As you know very well, Allama Sa'aduddin Taftazani Sharaqai discusses the development of why kalam started, the fitna and the difficulties. Do you feel that we have similar problems today as it was in the past in terms of difficulties in theology and we need kalam just as important as it was in the past? So, there's a village in Wales known as Wai
0: and they have a book village. It's an interesting place for you to visit. They have all these various bookshops. Once, many years ago, I went to buy a few books, I I bought Bertrand Russell's autobiography in three volumes and I also purchased alongside many other interesting books, a book by Anthony Flew, the man, the philosopher who debated uh, prominent Christian theologians but later adopted the belief in Deism. Toward the end of his life, even though Richard Dawkins said his mind had diminished in his old age. But when you watch Anthony Flew's interviews, the conclusion he draws and the attributes of the God he believes in, many of those attributes are the attributes that we study in Sunni Kalam, like Al-Wujud, al qidam Al-Baqa, these type of attributes. He had a book on the existence of God. I took this book back home. It was summertime. I read the book and I had a red pen. And I underlined all the arguments against the existence of God. This copy I still retain. If you peruse through the book, you will find that every argument he has against God and the existence of God are all old arguments of the Mu'tazila. So the Mu'tazila, an old group that existed over 1,200 years ago, The same arguments are regurgitated by an English philosopher. These arguments have been dismantled and debunked by Sunni mutakallimeen hundreds of years ago. So, similarly, when you study the arguments of Christopher Hitchens, or all these various atheists, prominent or non-prominent, academic and non-academic, vociferous or non-vociferous, vitriolic or non-vitriolic, all the various types of uh, atheists that you have. You study their arguments, and anyone who has studied Ilmul Kalam will realize most of them are fallacies, fallacious argumentation, incendiary talk, just to uh, spark emotions in people, and even the deep philosophical arguments that they will bring forward have already been dismantled in the classical kalam. Uh, uh, people use the word tradition, so I'll use the word tradition. Classical kalam tradition.
1: Afnan said, "Could you give us an example of what he uses as an argument that the Maturids used, and also the response from Sunni ulama?" So an example is
0: the the qidam of the sifat of Allah. So what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the pre-eternal nature of the divine attributes of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala That the Mu'tazila, they opposed Ahl-Sunnah. They said to Ahl-Sunnah, they refer to themselves as Ahl-Tawheed because they deem the Ahl-Sunnah, and this is the irony, because today people say the Ashari's deny the attributes of Allah. The Wahhabis, they say, some people are against me using the word Wahhabi, so I'll use the word Najdi for our convenience. Some of the Ahlul Najd, they say the Ash'aris deny the attributes of Allah, and they are Jahmiyyah. Now Jahm bin Safwan was an early, uh, not even a Mu'tazili, just an early philosopher, who denied the Sifat of Allah to the point that he declared Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as nothingness. He said you cannot even say Shaykh something regarding Allah. He denied everything. To compare them, those jahmis, with Asha'irah is a fallacy because the Asha'irah they affirm the attributes, and some of these people they falsely say Asha'irah only affirms seven attributes or twenty attributes, which is also false. But the Mu'tazila labeled the Ahl Sunnah as being Mushrikeen based upon what they said you believe in. Uh, multiple qudama, multiple a uh, multiple entities that were qadim, pre-eternal, meaning the attributes of Allah. Mm-hmm. So then, the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah they responded by de- demonstrating what uh, you know the argument in Sharh al regarding the attributes not being ainu that and neither that. Now, some people they think this is contradicting logic when the meaning of this is simply that the attributes are not separated from the that of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because they are not separable from the that of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they are not entities or qadim entities that contradict the tawhid of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, Anthony Flew utilizes similar type of arguments. That if there was a God and he had attributes, then those attributes would have to be eternal. But these things have been answered by the Ahl Sunnah to the point that, remember, the Mu'tazila never finished, they never expired because of persecution. The Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah never persecuted the Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila persecuted the Ahl Sunnah. But eventually the Mu'tazila expired and finished with time because of a group of ulama who are known as the Mutakallimeen. And these are not dry Mutakallimeen. They are not people of just the rational mind. Because Abu Hamid al Ghazali was a Sufi, they were also Sufis, so knowledge is not limited just, we do not worship the mind, we are not عُبَادُ الْعَقْلِ So Abdul Rahman Hassan, he said regarding the Shaira, that they have shahwa of the aql, desire of the aql, this is false, we do not worship the aql, the aql is a tool and instrument that we utilize to dismantle arguments but the Aql is subservient to the, to the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet. And just a false argumentation that he presented was that Imam Fakhruddin al Razi states that the Aql comes before the Nas. It's a misquote because he uses secondary and tertiary sources. Anyone who listens to him will realize he's quoting secondary and tertiary sources. He never goes to primary sources. So it's a false claim that we give precedence to the aql over the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu Just building upon
1: that, people often say that the Sunni ulama were either people of aql, rationalists, or they were people of tasawwuf Do you feel there were two separate things among scholars, or is it one or the same? I believe they are
0: one. Al-Imam al-Qushayri, rahimullah, is a fine example of this. He was an ash'ari imam, but he was the finest of Sufis. He wrote his famous book, ar risala Al-Risala Al-Qushayri. But he also defended the Ashari Creed. And he was Shaykh to Ali Al-Hajwari, Rahimallah, the author of Kashf al-Mahjub, who was buried in Lahore. They're all linked. These were people of Tasawuf and al Kalam. At times you may have some who, who may be deemed as being dry in the modern age but generally speaking traditionally in every century the ash'aira are a colourful group you have the ash'aira, like Al-Imam Al-Bayhaqi Al-Imam al nawawi Al-Imam Ibn Hajar Al-Asqalani Al-Imam Jalaluddin al Al-Imam Al-Qastalani so many of them similarly you have purely Mutakallimina sha'ira, like Imam Fakhruddin al Razi and many others. Then you have the likes of Imam Abu Hamid al Ghazali, Imam al Jawaini. Then you have the likes of Imam Muhammad bin Yusuf al Sanusi, who was a muhaddith. He wrote a commentary on the Sahih of Imam Muslim, but also a Mutakallim who refined Ilmul Kalam from all the philosophy. He removed all the philosophy from Ilmul Kalam, so it's a false notion for anyone to say the Ash'aris are just philosophers, or for anyone to say the Ash'aris are not even at the pinnacle of intellect this is false, they had the best intellects just because they didn't delve into worldly sciences it doesn't entail that they did not have the best intellect. so it's a colorful group and for someone to say they are purely philosophers is false they, they covered every field.
1: Just building upon that, as you mentioned, um, Sheikh Muhammad al Hashimi, his Miftah al Jannah was one of the first books in Aqeedah that I studied personally. Is this one of the ways we can protect our Sunni community from those charlatans? Fake beers because the Sauf is almost like a science of dhikr without ilam today, without the upper. Do you think this is one of the ways that we can protect the Sunni ulama by having our leaders being experts in the Aqliyat as well as the Sauf and the Nakliyat? So you
0: mentioned a Sheikh Muhammad al Hashmi, he's
1: the Shaykh of a Sheikh Abdurrahman al
0: Shahuri, a Sheikh Shukri al Luhafi, and so many other major awliya of Allah. A Sheikh Muhammad al Hashmi said regarding Il Suluq and that it is Nadir Nadir Jiddan. Very rare that someone actually does saluk. But he was a person who at his hand so many people became Abdal. What he died in nineteen sixty-one. He fought jihad against the French and he would always wear libas askari, the army uniform. He would carry guns, and sometimes he would wear the Moroccan thobe over the uh, The uniform, the Askari uniform. His photos are
1: often like that
0: when he's. With the army uniform. Because he fought jihad. And this is why, at the end of my book, uh, The Intellectual Intifada, I have pictures of examples of Ahlul Halli wal Aqd and Mujahideen. Who do I place? Umar al Mukhtar, Sheikh Muhammad al Hashmi, as an example of someone who embodied Islam. His students alone, they. Demonstrate how the Rijal of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala are. Ah, now what did he do? He went to the Masajid and he taught Ummul Baraheen of Imam As-Sunusi Rahimullah. He taught the people Tawheed. He taught them the attributes of Allah. The Ahkamul Aql, the rational judgments. Ahkamul sharah, the legal judgments. Ahkamul Aada. Made that common knowledge amongst the people. But then he also did tarbiyah of the people by giving them al Wirdul al-aam, the shadli wird. The shadli wird, which is a basic wird. Nowadays, some people refer to it as a, a wird of shirk. billah. It's a wird from the Qur'an and sunnah. He gave out the shadli wird. And then, selectively from his top students, he did the tarbiyah, nurturing them. He nurtured them on the Qur'an and sunnah. And remember the manhaj of Sheikh Muhammad al-Hashimi has its roots with al-Imam Abu'l-Hasan al but also with a Sheikh Muhyiddin ibn Arabi, who was a man of Qur'an and Sunnah irrelevant to the claims of his critics. So even the likes of al-Imam Taqiuddin al-Subki, people mention his criticism of a Sheikh Muhyiddin. They do not mention he retracted that. Similarly, Al Sultanul Ulama Al Iz bin Salam Rahimullah he retracted his criticism. He he praised the Sheikh Muhyiddin ibn Arabi. And when you actually read Al Fatuhatul Makkiyah, you will realise that the man was upon the Quran and the Sunnah. So As Sheikh Muhammad al Hashmi embodied that. His, and many other of, of the ulama, Sheikh Hassan Habannaka, Rahimullah. All these ulama, Sheikh Abdul Karim al Rifai, so. These are great people who taught us, the people Tawhid, and they taught them the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they embodied the practice of Islam
1: also. Maşallah, Just regarding Sheikh Muhyiddin in Abu Arabi and the, the Akbarian school because the Ottoman entire heritage is really based upon him. Uh, Dawud Qaisri, I believe, was the first Ottoman educational minister, and he has a harshi on his Fusul al-Hikm. So when it comes to people like Mahideen and other great awliya, do you believe today for the Sunni community, because that's our heritage, these great people, how does the Sunni community today benefit from people similar today, or what type of qualities should we look for when we look for a shaykh. Because as we know in our communities, often there's beevs and shaykhs. And we have great people in our communities, but we have the opposite people that misuse our community. What type of qualities do you think that we should look for when looking for a shaykh or a guide or someone to help us in our faith?
0: So in the UK, the general advice is you stick to the creed of ahl Sunnah al Jama'ah. Your Shaykh is through a salawat and salam upon the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa You stick to the sharia of Allah according to the madhab that you follow. The majority here follow the Hanafi school, but people follow one of the other three schools. You stick to the fiqh of that school, and you take benefit from all the mashaykh. So you attend the majalis of all the mashaykh. I do not restrict my students to specific sunni mashaykh. They should go to all sunni mashaykh. Benefit from them, but do not limit yourself to one man in this time, in this country. That does not mean that there are not al ulama al murabbeen. There are, they exist. Al murabbeen, those who nurture students, like Ahmad Yahya Sirajuddin, the son of al-shaykh Abdullah Sirajuddin, Rahimullah. They exist. But are we worthy of even attempting to claim that we do saluk at their hands? Have we reached the level, al-shaykh Abdullah Sirajuddin, Rahimullah, when someone would take saluk with him? After they are given the wird, they would have to wake up two hours. This is a beginner. Two hours before Salatul Fajr, pray Tahajjud and carry out certain Aurad. That's the beginner level. So a person who is a, a Salik, if he's not praying Qiyamul Layl, he's not praying Tahajjud, he's not praying Salatul Duha, he hasn't make, made up all his qadar prayers, he hasn't uh, paid all the Zakat that he missed in his life, He hasn't made up the fast, all the fasts that he missed in Ramadan. He hasn't carried out his Fard Haj. He doesn't. He hasn't given the rights of his parents, Hukukul Walideen. He hasn't paid off all his debts. He has no Hukukul Aybad on his shoulders, like Ghiba and Namima and Hasad. Then he is not even a Salik. So people have to be realistic. So what? How should we be realistic? Shaykh Muhyiddin ibn Arabi re- relates tahqeekul fard he mentions tahqeekul fard what is al fard? complete your fard do your fard, what is fard upon you? complete your fard he states otherwise claiming to do mustahab claiming to do mandub, claiming to do sunnah becomes a shahwa. a person does the additional things out of shahwa, but he is not doing his fard and avoiding haram so in this day and age, Sahih Aqida by studying Umul Barahina wal Imam Sunusi or Tahawiya. Secondly, following a Madhab in Fiqh, sticking to the Fiqh of that Madhab, not following anomalous opinions, and thirdly, Salawat and Salam upon the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam non-stop, and you can say take an awrat, a aurat a wird like the Shadili wird or another wird daily word or from the adhkar of al-imam and take benefit from all sunni ulama. If you see faults in those sunni ulama, take what is good, leave what is bad and take, take from all of them. Do not restrict yourself to one.
1: Would you agree that the relationship between sunni aqidah and Hanafis is Umu min meaning there's, there's some sunnis that are Hanafi and there's some Sunnis that are not a Hanafi like the Shafi, Maliki, Hanbali and then you have some Hanafis that follow the Sunni Aqaib but then also there's a group of Hanafis that don't follow Sunni Aqaib Would you agree with that statement?
0: Remember there are, in history, there have been Mu'tazili Hanafis Currently speaking, some of the Wahhabis, or oh, sorry, Najdis they attempt to hijack the Maliki school they, What do they do? Ibn Ashir's text they remove the Sunni creed at the beginning they removed the Sufi passages or they annotate and they quote Salih al-Uthaymeen Attempting to hijack the school But if we look at the trajectory of the four madhabs, the majority have always been Sunni The main work in the Hanafi school in the late times is the Hashi of Ibn Abidin, Radul Muhtar So anyone claiming to be a Hanafi today and from Ahl Sunnah wal Jamaah Then let's make our marji' Hashi Ibn Abdin. the Hashi of Ibn Abdin unites the Hanafis. So when you go back to the Hashi of Ibn Abdeen, those who reject the Hashi, you will, you will be able to discern the, the Sunni
1: from the non-Sunni. Okay. Moving on to your second and third chapter in epistemology and also God's existence. From a purely rational point of view, how does learning ilmul kalam help a Muslim build the relationship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in their worship? So, remember, shubuhat is
0: doubts that occur in the mind. When a Muslim has any doubts in his mind regarding his aqeedah, that causes weakness of iman. When you have weakness of iman, your ibadah is affected. But if you have a schema, a framework, an epistemology, a way of approaching knowledge, that will give you firmness with regard to certainty. And when a mu'min has certainty, regarding Allah regarding the Quran regarding the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu he will have ziyadatul iman an increase in iman shaykh mahyuddin ibn arabi he mentions what is iman he says love increase of love is an increase of iman increase of love of allah is an increase of iman increase of love of, 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 of rasulullah sallallahu is an increase of iman that would entail that every believer should increase his love of Allah and his Rasul meaning, whenever you look at murtad apostate cases, you will notice a common theme, that many of them are devoid of love of Allah in the first place, they were not nurtured on the love of Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala, or the love of Rasulullah and therefore they became devoid of Iman, so having a methodology increases your iman, increases your worship, increases halawatul iman, the sweetness of iman. Sure. So qiyamul layl, tahajjud, as bil-jama'ah, praying in jama'ah, reading your awrad, your litanies, praying additional and all of this becomes easy when you do munajat with Allah, you beseech Allah, but all of that is easier when you have
1: stronger Iman without doubts, without shubuhat. Just regarding ilm al-kalam now, do you believe ilm al-kalam is a methodology to learn or is it a subject matter that you study?
0: So ilm al-kalam is a subject matter, but every believer, every mu'min should have a segment of what is instructed in ilm al-kalam, meaning in the sense that some people, they cannot make a distinction between Ahkamul Aada and Ahkamul Aql. Two things. Ahkamul Ada is what we refer to as scientific laws. Ahkamul Aql is the rational judgment. They are two different things. So many times you have young people saying, this does not make any rational sense. But they are referring to Ahkamul not to Ahkamul Aql. In that sense it is essential for everyone to draw the distinctions so they do not fall into common fallacies like Richard Dawkins in an interview with Mahdi Hassan Al Jazeera he mentions the Burak as something unscientific something irrational but the easy response to Richard Dawkins would be that the existence of Burak is beyond the scientific methodology. Why? Because the buraq was an intergalactic, multidimensional animal or creature that entered this domain for a fraction of time, which is not contradicted by relativity. And when it entered this domain for a, for a fraction of time, Rasulullah sallallahu al- 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 traveled on the burak, an interdimensional being, and returned back, Beyond scientific investigation Does that contradict the hukm al-aql? The answer is no Is it beyond scientific investigation, which is hukm al The answer is yes So the dismissal is based on lack of Iman lack of Iman led him to deny it The mu'min believes in it because of Iman, but does it contradict the rational judgment? The answer is no but the jahil the jahil atheist or the jahil murtad will be unable to distinguish between and and not be even able to acknowledge the distinction. So, there are many juhal, ignorant people sometimes when dialoguing with them, they will not even acknowledge the distinction. And this is where we enter the domain of epistemology. You need a fixed epistemology. Otherwise, if you notice a common theme in the khawarij, lack of usul. They have no usul, So they declare everyone kafir, without principles. And the opposite, on the, the other spectrum, on the other side of the spectrum, you have uh, those people who, the ibahiyun meaning they validate everything. What do they do? They have no usul either. They have no principles. They do not have fixed usul. But Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah has a distinction. Al-Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah, he wrote his famous al Al-Risala was what? Uh, the legal theory, how to read and study the Qur'an and Sunnah. And this is what draws the distinction between Ahl al-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah and other groups.
1: Okay, mashallah. Coming on to science in Islam, which I believe is chapter 5 in your book, um, and this categorization of Hukam Adi, Hukam Aqli, Hukam shar'i, which is in the Sanasiya creeds and the commentaries, how important do you feel that is for young people? Because many people here have either studied at school or university. We have teenagers that are studying science at school. How do we reconcile what people are learning at school and the aqidah that they've been taught in the masajid or in places similar? So, as I mentioned,
0: having a correct schema or a framework in order to process information is so important. We live in the day and age of information, but what we lack is regulation and processing. So someone can be exposed to so much information, especially when they have these not-so-smart phones and people, when they access the information, they are unable to process this. You can ask doctors, some people they have symptoms, they type in the symptom on Google and they believe they have a particular disease, they may not have that disease. Similarly with information, whether it's scientific, philosophical, theological, Non-professionals, when they are exposed to that information, some of them will become arrogant, like what happens to the young Salafi sometimes. When exposed to a verse of the Quran or the Sunnah, they will utilize that verse or the Hadith in order to bash the head of the opponent. But they are unable to process the information. As I mentioned, Imam Shafi's early work, Al-Risala, gives a process of how to. Process a hadith, is the hadith mudraj, is, is the hadith mudtarib is the hadith munqati is the hadith da'if, etc. Meaning all these things, is it shad? there's a process. Then the mechanics of usool, is it aam, is it khas, etc. Looking at all of these. Similarly, scientific information. So if you notice in chapter 5, I place the categorization of science. So, in school, in the year 1997, I was exposed to charts of supposed progress of man. So, you had the pictures of man on a paper. And we were told this is factual, that uh, man had all these various stages and then meaning the process of evolution. But as you grow up and you read uh, information articles like recently, there's an artifact found in Africa which, which dates 1.5 million years which changes the whole narrative of human migration and human development and the development of the mind, the human mind. Because they thought 1.5 million years ago man was not developed enough to make artifacts. But that changes significantly what we were taught in the 90s with regard to the development of humankind. So what is presented as fact in school, I'm not advocating that young Muslims become flat earthers. I'm not advocating that Muslims dismiss science, no. In fact, our methodology is very scientific. History speaks for itself, meaning the Muslims, historically, were very scientific, the majority of them. And today Islamic Kalam, Ilmul Kalam, the Sunni Ilmul Kalam, This Ilmul Kalam is not in contradistinction to science. What it does is it categorizes science where it belongs. So what do I mention? I mention absolute certainty, near certainty, doubt, and imagination. Some things in science are actual imagination. Some things are doubtful. They have some proof, but generally they are doubtful. Some have near certainty. Some have absolute certainty. The Muslim needs to know the framework. In where does he categorize any specific scientific theory? So, just on that,
1: how do we practically then, as imams, massages committees, our local Sunni communities, or how do we practically learn that framework, that paradigm, to process the information that we receive at school and in the world we live in today? So practically, you can refer to my book. In chapter five,
0: I present. If people just read chapter five, they will have. An exact method an exact method is given in the book uh, the application is also with regard to the information you receive for instance you visit the London Science Museum you go to London you visit the London Science Museum and you observe all these various artifacts and fossils what type of knowledge does that impart does it impart absolute certainty with regard to Neanderthal man and the nature of the the, the uh, prefrontal development of the uh, the the lobe front lobe of the the Neanderthal man. What type of information does that actually depart to our to our methodology? Meaning, what conclusion do we draw from that? The answer is that you will never reach absolute certainty with regard to the evolution of man. So. And Knowing the categorization of all types of Uloom is absolutely essential now going back a bit to chapter 2 What do I mention? What we know from Al-Hawasul-Khamsa? the five sensory perceptions Seeing hearing smelling taste and touch this gives absolute certainty similarly the rational judgment what is the rational judgment a judgment formed solely from the mind Without any external reference, like a blind man, know, blind and deaf man, knowing two and two is four, he did not come to that conclusion from an external thing. And thirdly, from what what we refer to as ta'watur, mass transmission of reports, these things impart absolute certainty. But scientific research on certain things does not give absolute certainty; it may impart doubt. Doubt here, by the way, doesn't mean it's doubtful in its entirety. It entails that it's not absolute certainty or near certainty. I'm using the word doubt as a technical term.
1: Okay. Regarding adults and people that can read your book, how would you advise parents then to instill that framework to their children at a young age? Again, the Sanusiyah is where you start.
0: So, Umm al you study the Umm Barahin with the local imam, you can also listen to my online lecture of the entire Ummul You make notes on that. If you teach them just Hukmul Aql, Hukmul Aada, Hukmul Shara, they will have the,
1: the requisite tools to categorize things in life. I think Shaykh Muhammad al-Hashmi's book Miftah al-Jannah is an excellent introduction to the Sanusia because he lays out the framework really, really well in his text. Coming on to science. What would you say regarding, because the scientific methodology, often Muslims say this is our heritage, the Muslims, they invented the scientific methodology. Would you say there's a distinction between the methodology in science, individual scientists and their view, and also the idea that science or scientism is the ultimate means to truth? So there's two things here. One is, if some
0: Muslims are claiming that the scientific method is their heritage, this is false. Science is a human heritage. goes from civilization to civilization we adopted much of greek science muslims took from the greeks there's no doubt they developed some of it and they passed it on to europe it's no big deal if europe advances but even though i do not think it's a point of boast for europe or america by extension because with science they developed the atomic bomb with science they developed weapons that kill and maim. So science can be misused. Science doesn't teach you ethics and morals. So the Muslims had the scientific flag for a few hundred years, then the flag passed on to other groups. Now the flag may move on to China. Big deal. It doesn't matter. It's a human heritage. But there are some people who become enamored by the development of Europe and the progression in terms of economic development, social development, and Prosperity in that regard, and they blame backwardness upon Islam when they are two totally distinct things. But Islam has the role of what? Of giving science an ethical safeguard. It has an ethical and moral safeguard. Now, with regard to scientism, which is the actual worship of science, it has its limitations and flaws. Science. Is only the study of the material world it cannot tell you with regard to the metaphysics what is beyond the physical secondly science cannot answer moral questions ethical questions it can tell you how something functions but it will not tell you the purpose it can tell you how the human body the biological functions functioning occurs but it does not tell you the purpose of the human being so scientism If someone takes scientism as a way of life, like some people take misguided LGBT as a way of life. Some people take fluffies and flurries and whatever the things you have as a way of life. Islam is a way of life. But if someone takes science as a way of life, they they will end up in a conundrum. They will have conundrums in their life where they will be unable to answer certain questions.
1: Just regarding that, how, is it, how important is it then for young Muslims that are studying at university? Many of our parents want their children to study medicine to become doctors, studying chemistry, biology, physics at A-level in university. How is, important is it for young Muslims to learn their Aqidah? And what are the potential consequences of not learning your Aqidah and then drilling into a deep study into science? So, uh, most of the time, those who fall into Shubuhat and doubts
0: tend not to be from scientific backgrounds. And if they are, they sometimes fall back into the deen of Allah. There are people, young people, who may have studied physics, astrophysics, other fields of science, and they may have fallen out in terms of their iman. But later on as they develop in their life, they have character development, they go through a journey, they return back to iman. But those who become more corrupted intellectually are the ones who delve into the field of philosophy. So it's absolutely essential that they study even a basic book, like the work of Imam Ahmad bin Zaini Dahlan, The Essential Islamic Creed. That book is in English, by the way, The Essential Islamic Creed. They should study at least that much. You will be surprised how little you can study and protect your Iman for life. Meaning you do not need to read big works of Kalam to protect your Iman. You can even read something as simple as the essential Islamic creed of Imam Ahmad bin Zaini Dahlan, And you will realize how fallacious and stupid atheist arguments actually are. You even read this book, you will realize the arguments have no foundation. They have no strong foundation. You listen to Christopher Hitchens, you will realize most of the arguments are fallacious.
1: Now shall I? Coming back to you mentioned the atomic bomb and technology in the West. So moving on to the problem of evil. So within Western countries, generally the Western heritage is based upon the Greek tradition and the Roman tradition and the UK, the pagan society and then Christianity. So the problem of evil was, was generally an issue that was brought up against Christianity. So from an Islamic perspective, has this been an issue in our heritage and history, the problem of evil? And then second of all, how do we tackle uh, the discussion in the West regarding the problem of evil? So again, referring back to
0: Anthony Flew's book, you asked me earlier, what type of arguments? Just for the benefit of the audience, you can you
2: know, specify what the problem of evil actually is, and then go on to explain.
0: So the, the problem of evil he's asking about is the fact that we have evil in the world, or what is defined as evil, suffering. Human suffering, animal suffering. They refer to that as being evil, and then they say it's a problem, the problem of evil, in the sense... That if god was so good if god existed then why does evil exist why doesn't god terminate evil it's in reference to that argument that argument was utilized also by the mu'tazila so the mu'tazila had a problem with the fact that the sunni creed or the muslim creed is that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates everything min ma khalaq from the evil of what he creates. The Sunnis had no problem with this. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he has sifatul, the attributes of divine action. So he is al muhi the one who gives life, he is also Al-Mumit, the one who gives death. He is Al Khafit, the one who lowers, but he is also al-Rafi. He is Al mudil the one who disgraces, but he is also al-Mu'iz. The one who raises and exalts people. So, the Sunnis never had a problem with this. But the Mu'tazila found it problematic when engaging with Christians and philosophers. So what did they do? They claimed, firstly, that Allah does not create the actions of people. People create their own actions. So this led now to problem. Discussion in Kalam. Second thing they denied. Or groups of them. Qadr is created by humans. Humans create their own destiny. A kind of creed that some Westerners also hold. That humans create their own destiny. And then they found it problematic to understand that if Allah knows everything, then why did he not just place everyone in paradise or hellfire? These type of conundrums. And questions like, can God create a boulder so big he himself cannot raise the boulder Absurd questions. And then they questioned human free will. And then they also questioned the fact that they said, Allah must do that which is better, salih and aslah, That which is better for every human being. Eventually that was what made Al-Imam Abul Hassan ashari Rahimullah depart from the Mu'tazila. When he questioned Ali al-Jubai. Uh, the story is that he questioned Ali al-Jubai and he, he had him dumbfounded. He was an, Ali al-Juba. He was unable to answer What did the Mu'tazila believe? They believed that Allah must do what is better for us So they made something wajib upon Allah and the Shia then adopted this creed how the Shia the modern twelvers They believe that it is an obligation on Allah to send down Imams. They must Allah must send down Imams so this is how Again, Anthony Flew utilizes these type of arguments so the problem of evil in the early period affected the Mu'tazila but then the Sunnis responded they responded intellectually of course the Sunnis do respond with the Quran and Sunnah first but they give intellectual responses to all of these claims for instance the Ahl Sunnah they say evil is subjective what we may term as being evil, the divine action of Allah cannot be described as evil. Allah and his divine actions are not evil, because evil is subjective. When a human does something, the action of the human can be described as evil. Because the very definition of evil is what? Is a tasarruf fi mulkil ghayr. Yes, the violating of someone else's property. But how can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intervening in the creation be deemed as evil when the whole creation belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the first place so even the death of a child or the suffering of a child or the suffering of an animal this when ascribed to Allah in terms of Allah creating that cannot be termed as being evil in the first place evil is subjective Al-Imam Abu Hamd al-Ghazali gives the example in Al-Iqtisad of a snake. For the snake, its poison is bad for the victim. But for the snake itself, the poison is good. It keeps the snake alive. So even poison of a snake is subjectively evil. And then the Ahl-Sunnah, they respond to the, the claim with regard to human free will. They respond to that. They say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates everything in the sense that if I decide now That I'm feeling thirsty, which I am. I pour water Into this cup now when he decides to take the bottle and pour the water His hand is created by Allah The bottle is created by Allah. The cup is created by Allah when I drink the water The water quenches my thirst by the will of Allah. But what am I exercising? I have the free will to exercise the holding of the cup and lifting the cup. But then the action is created by Allah. But when I say insha'Allah, that is the meaning of insha'Allah. Because sometimes if someone intends to do something, the means, the asbab are not there. Because the person may not be able to move the hand the the cup could disappear the water may not quench my thirst so allah creates everything but there is something within the human being which is known as the exercising of free will which is qasab so the sunni ulama, the theologians responded to all the arguments and they dismantled them to the point that they have no weight in the muslim world some modern people attempt to revive the arguments but when they are countered, they have no basis and then people leave those type of arguments. MashaAllah.
1: Just going back to a word you've been using, Ashri or asha'ira um, This is a, a, often a word that certain groups, they like to use to say that asharis are, are not Sunnis. And especially in Speaker's Corner, which you have a lot of people there debating, and it's on YouTube. This word's thrown around a lot, the Ashri, the they deny the Sifat of Allah, they're not Sunnis. Can you just define who is this group, and who do we call the Asha'ira? So uh, with regard to this, with regard to
0: those people in Hyde Park, the problem for me is that Hyde Park is far from Birmingham. Unfortunately, you London Sunnis, not you, the <laughs> London Sunnis, they have not got one rajul to go down to Hyde Park and counter their arguments, fallacious arguments. Where are you Ahl Sunnah wal Jamaah in the whole of UK? Where is, are your debaters and your peers and all these people Go into Hyde Park and debate them? In London, it's full of Sunni masajid. You need to counter their arguments. now why do they make these arguments there is actually a propaganda campaign against ash'ari what is that propaganda campaign that the ash'aris deny the sifat of allah or they only attribute seven attributes this is a false propaganda the ash'aris affirm the attributes of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even though their texts instruct the people regarding 20 essential attributes, it doesn't mean they deny all the other attributes. So what the modern Salafi movement has done, an entire funded propaganda tarnishing campaign, a smear campaign, against the Ashaya, which is to say they are Jahmiya, they are Mu'tazila, they are grave worshippers. Seriously speaking, in our Sunni masajid, you don't, do not have graves and people do not do sajda to the graves. But there is a smear campaign. There was even one prominent uh, London person who mentioned to me all his life, he thought that brailwis were people who placed chairs in the masjid. They placed a chair in the front of the masjid, and they believed the Prophet sallallahu <laughs> <and laughs> alaihi <laughs> <laughs> sits on the, on the chair. Waliyadhu billah. <laughs> unheard of. Unheard of concepts. Or, uh, for instance stating that they believe the Prophet ﷺ is the actual Noor of Allah from Allah's essence uh, they believe these are false claims and they, or they believe that the Prophet ﷺ has equal knowledge to Allah such type of false notions so Hyde Park is full of false notions and you need a well equipped ashari well tooled well Instructed eloquent and cogent to go down and deal with these goons and silence their arguments because it's a propaganda campaign inshallah I am preparing an army from Birmingham to go down of students of knowledge But it's an obligation on our our community to counter these type of fallacious arguments young people should not fall into the two claims. Number one, Asharis deny the sifat of
1: Allah. False. Can you just give us an example of that? What do they mean by when we say we um, deny the sifat of Allah? So, for instance, in the Quran,
0: Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is described with what? Yad. Tabarakallahi bi yedihi. Yes?
1: Yadullahi
0: fawqa Yad is ascribed to Allah in an, a next form. What do I mean by a next form? Yad is annexed to the pronoun yadi. Do we deny that? No. Do we affirm it? Yes. Do we, do we even affirm it as Sifa of Allah? Yes. So stop there. That is the belief of the Salaf. They say, no, you don't. They probe the issue. They do not follow the Salaf because Al-Imam Malik, rahimullah, if someone affirmed to him the attributes, they would leave it there, they would not probe the matter more. So we say, these are attributes of Allah. You leave it to that point. But then they probe the issue, they say, what do you mean by Yad? We say Sifa. If you left it to that point, they say no, because there's an entire strawman argument that they need to present, that you as Shariz are actually denying the reality of the Yad what is the reality they cannot utter what they mean by that reality what they actually mean by the reality we say we do tafwidul ma'na and tafwidul ma'na to allah what do we mean by tafwidul ma'na this is important they say when you do tafwidul ma'na they say you have denied the meaning because what does tafwidul ma'na mean tafwidul ma'na means we defer the meaning to allah so they say when you do tafweedul ma'na, you have negated the meaning. So they say, we know the meaning. We say to them, in response to them, that the general meaning is known in the Arabic language. But specifying a meaning is with certainty is only known to Allah. Specifying a meaning with certainty is only known to Allah. If an alim, like al-imam al-nawwi, O oh, al Imam Ibn Hajar specifies a meaning; they do not specify it with certainty. So, for yad, linguistically, can have multiple meanings. We affirm the general meaning and leave the specific meaning to Allah, and we affirm it as a sifatul ma'na, quality of Allah, an attribute. But specifying the meaning with certainty, we do not do. If some ulama did so, it's the ijtihad. This is known as ta'wil. They say this ta'wil and tafidul mana, you have negated the actual attribute. This is false. Because if they say they know the meaning, then why do they not tell us the meaning? Why they do not tell us the meaning is because what they mean by the actual meaning is limbs, which we negate. So they they actually mean limbs. So salih al mean on record, it's known he has said that. We do not affirm a jism for Allah, a body for Allah, but neither do we negate it because Allah hasn't negated it. So when they say that we, aff- when they say regarding themselves that the Salafis affirm the attribute, what they mean is that they imply a limb, they imply it. But the Ashari say, no, we affirm a quality, an attribute of Allah in the general meaning. We affirm it, but the specific meaning, we leave to Allah. And if any scholar does ta'weel, what does ta'weel mean? Specifying a meaning without absolute certainty. This is the subject in summary. Then it has other details with regard to their source books, and our source books, authenticating some of these books ascribed to Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal, the aqwal of the salaf. With regard to the aqwal of the salaf, when the salaf say things like, Allah is Fawq al-Arsh. We affirm that. How do we affirm that? We say Allah is Fawq al-Arsh. This Fawq aboveness is Fawqiyya Mutlaqah. Unrestricted aboveness. Wa huwa al He is al-qahir, the one who subdues above his servants. So Allah is Fawq al-Arsh. But they were saying this in response to the jahmiya, uh, the Jahmiya, what did the Jahmiya say? That Jahmiyyah said Allah is everywhere, bidatihi. So the Salaf were refuting them. Or for instance, when the Salaf say bidatihi, if it is authentic, they mean la That when they say Allah is above the Arsh bidatihi with His essence, they mean and with an aboveness that He is not in need of anything else. Or for instance when they utilize the word had that Allah has a had a limit that only he knows what do they mean they mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not indwelling in creation so even the the statements they quote from the Salaf we have our own particular understanding of those statements so they cannot even bamboozle us with these statements of Sufyan authority there are some extreme ashorees who deny these statements sometimes because they cannot Explain them away. We affirm the Athari Creed, Asharis. We affirm the Sifat of Allah. But we do not need to negate those attributes uh, of Allah, and we do not need to even deny the aqwal of the Salaf. We accept the aqwal. But how they are understanding the aqwal is different to how we understand the aqwal. I hope that sufficient detail for young Sunnis to go to Hyde
1: Park and dismantle their arguments, inshallah. inshallah. Just regarding Ashri, because traditionally we hear Ashri and Maturudi and Hanafis, generally speaking, in, in India, pak subcontinent, uh, they claim to be Hanafis and Maturudis. Is there any particular reason why you mention Ashri and not Maturudi, or do you include the Maturudi within the Ashri? So this is uh,
0: used by way of tāglīb. What is is tāglīb in Ilmul Balagha? You have Taghleeb, a concept in Ilmul Badi, which is what, that you mentioned one thing, uh, two things with one name. So, aswadain for for dates and water. Water is not black, but you say the two black things, dates and water. O uh for the sun and moon. Or for what? For Abu Bakr siddiq and yeah. Sayyidun Umar. Similarly, Asha'ira is Taghleeb, it includes Maturidis and Atharis. Ma Secondly, in the Indian subcontinent, some people, they say we are Maturidi, but they do not even realize that Al Imam Ahmad Khan, rahimullah, he opposed the Maturidi positions. He was in fact an Akbari. He had Akbari positions. He was a pro Sheikh Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi, rahim Just To
1: clarify, Akbari, what, what do
0: you mean by Akbari here? Akbari is in reference to a hybrid. That hybrid is the if you have a mixture of not the thoughts of. Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi, because he's he wasn't a philosopher. Do not believe that Ibn Arabi was a philosopher. Ibn Arabi was a man of Kash. So what he wrote down, some and many very few people actually understand him, by the way. Very few people actually understand him. There are many ulama who were influenced by Ibn Arabi to the point that Shaykh al-Islam Zakariya al-Ansari Rahimullah was akbari. His students were Akbari. That means the entire Shafi'i school, post al Islam Zakariya al-Ansari with Abdul Wahab al-Sha'arani, al-Ramli, all these people, they were all Akbari. They were influenced by Ibn Arabi. In the Indian subcontinent, Imam Ahmad Rida Khan was Akbari. He was influenced by the teachings of Ibn Arabi. That is why he is also misunderstood by some people. He's misunderstood people do not read these actual works like Al they just take the words of others in order to tarnish the man. But in reality he was an Akbari, but I use the word Ash'ari as an umbrella term which includes all of these various groups and I tend to stick to the mainstream
1: Ash'ari thought. Just regarding the Akbarian because the, the whole Ottoman Tradition and because of the episodes of Ertegul and, and Usman, uh, the Ottoman tradition is a bit more prevalent in people's minds. But the entire Akbarian school, from the Ottoman perspective, if you look at the great scholars like Mullah Fanari and the great scholars that came afterwards, they were all influenced. You can argue that they were all Akbarian in, the, in their thought. So coming on to the, the last topic of today before we open the question and answer, and chapter 16, the Quran, Hadith, and Sharia. Um, The obvious question which I think a lot of people have in their minds which is sadly in the media and also due to a small minority of Muslims um, that go around saying we need the Sharia, Sharia. Can you just define what is the Sharia and do we have a need for the Sharia right here living in the UK especially those people that go out protesting that we want the Sharia.
0: So the Sharia is needed everywhere. There's no doubt. But it's a matter of how you display the need for Sharia. Carrying billboards and going outside of parliament and saying, Dan, with parliament, we need Sharia, is not how you establish Sharia. How you establish Sharia is through da'wah in Allah. And argumentation in Hyde Park alone does not bring people to Islam. You need Sharia through what? Through bringing people to Al-Islam in the first place. So the objective of Muslims should be da'wah Allah, calling people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When they come to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they apply the sharia upon themselves. So there is an approach. And the approach of the Sufis in the past was always to go into a region, bring people to Islam with love. Through love, bringing them to Islam. And that is what we are missing here in the UK and elsewhere, That I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that some wali of Allah, some Sufi bring Islam to these shores in the sense that at his hands thousands of English, Scottish and Irish people become Muslims at his hands. That is the real call to the Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we do need Sharia, but what is the approach? Is it an aggressive approach? Without bringing people close to Allah, inculcating love of Allah in their hearts, love of Rasulullah sallallahu in their hearts first. Because you cannot bring Sharia without love. But as the status quo currently, we are living as what a minority in this country. So what do we do? Uh, we just carry on with our call to Islam, to Tawheed and the correct teachings of Islam
1: also. Final question for me before we open up for question and answer. Yes. The Salatul Isha will be read at 9 o'clock, inshallah. Um, it's just regarding most people think of the Sharia is hudud, like punishments. So when we say Sharia, you cut people's hands or death penalty. Can you just give us a discussion of how broad the Sharia is in terms of its rulings for people? So here I would say that
0: even those things that people deem as being harsh in the Sharia are in fact a Rahmah of Allah. I'll give you an example. Your question has two facets. One is I want to demonstrate that even what is termed as being harsh laws are in fact not harsh and secondly the Sharia being broad. So with regard to the first hudud of stoning for zina for adultery there is something known as crimes of passion. Generally speaking I tend to read the headlines of Birmingham Mail. And Bir- Birmingham is an interesting city, second after London. You'll find many interesting crimes that occur. Some of those crimes sometimes is a man goes home or a woman goes home, they find their partner sleeping <coughs> with another person, and they carry out a crime of passion where they murder. And in some cases, you had one case in Luton. A Muslim woman was sleeping with her own brother-in-law. Muslim woman. It was a famous case. When the wife of the man found out, her sister was doing this zina, she confronted her. The sister-in-law, the, the zania, the adultress, she killed her own sister. And then she was given a police interview and she lied that some intruder came in. These are known as crimes of passion and there are many disturbing cases sometimes the both partners are killed very horrific cases so then you have our stoning law our stoning law meaning the sharia the stoning law was in the quran the verses mansukh even though some scholars take nasikh mansukh some say it doesn't exist in the quran meaning in terms of mansukh tilawa but the correct position is mansukh al did exist. Sheikh Abdullah al Gumari takes the position of mansukh al didn't exist. But the correct position is that it did exist. But the stoning is found in the hadith, mass-transmitted hadith. Stoning sounds harsh that you stone someone to death for zina, but it's not harsh when you look at the sin of adultery. But I want you to consider something. Is the love ever carried out? In fact, if you check the works of Qanun in the Ottoman Annals, you will find very rarely it was carried out in the Ottoman Caliphate. Very rarely. It was very rarely carried out. It's so difficult to carry out that, of course, many of you will know that the detail of four witnesses, they cannot contradict one another. They must see the act blatantly in the sense explicitly with detail to the point that if they witness accounts contradict, they will be lashed in public and shamed. So, and no one ever admits to doing such an act. So the law is very rarely applied. Then its application, with regard to its application, some people have an idea that the law is brutal in the sense of how it is carried out. Well, how a law is carried out can change from time and place. So how people carried out the law 500 years ago In the modern age, we may have a specific allocated area for the application of the law which is congenial to the environment, etc. But also, if the person being stoned runs away, it's taken as denial of the action. And the qadi is not permitted, and the people are not permitted to chase after him. So he has the freedom to run away from the application of that law. The point being, the law is so nuanced, so detailed but needed at the same time. Likewise, amputation of the hands. How many times have we heard of people entering into people's homes, strangling the entire family to death, taking their wealth? Amputation of the hand is a light punishment in comparison. But again, the law is very rarely carried out. It's not carried out if the person was stealing food. It's not carried out if the wealth stolen was was meager in value. It's not carried out if the wealth is in public display. It's not carried out if the person was a guest at the house. It's not carried out if and if and if and if. So many shuruot conditions. So these are this is with regard to harsh punishments in Islam. It's so nuanced, you can reference my book, Intellectual Intifada, a book on the restoring the caliphate in the modern age. It's my book on Sharia law. With regard to the second... Segment, Sharia law has good and superb guidelines and economy on feeding the stomachs of people. The waste that happens in modern capitalism would not occur under the application of Sharia law that so many hungry people man-made hunger, man-made in the sense that human beings are responsible. That is just one aspect of Sharia law, the economic application. Like this you can look at various aspects of Sharia law, social aspects, which will make someone realize that the Sharia law is better for humanity
1: than man-made law. Thank you for your time, Mashallah, and your excellent explanation. I wish we could continue. I have lots more questions, but due to our time restraints, we're going to open it up, Inshallah, for people to ask questions. If we could please have questions about the subject today, and then if we have time, Inshallah, we'll open it up. So
2: people have sent in some questions. Around, but before we go to the questions, I want to kind of take you back to um, one of the questions that... Um, atheist raise and this is a question that gets asked in schools about kids in their RE and philosophy um, subjects of if if God is so powerful, can you create a rock so big that he can't lift it? So I mean from our perspective it's a very absurd question. So I just wanted to kind of throw it out to the audience here, is, is if they have a think about that and how they would attempt to answer that question then I'd like you to perhaps give them some practical Advice on how to, uh, to uh, tackle
0: questions like that. So that question, remember, is so absurd that the question... And this is how you answer in your RS class. Say, teacher, the, answer is so, the question is so absurd because in effect you are asking me, can God make himself powerless? And the answer is no. Can God make himself powerless? The answer is no. Why? Because the divine power does not relate to the logically impossible. It does not connect to that. We do not say God is powerless. We do not say God is unable. We say what? The Qudra of Allah, the divine power of Allah only relates to that which is possible. It doesn't relate to that which is impossible. Someone may say why? The response is that if the divine power related to the impossible, that in effect would mean the impossible becomes possible. And the impossible becoming possible is impossible in itself.
2: Uh, question here, if one can't comprehend God with Goliath al is belief in God certain
0: qat'i or speculative the Belief in God is qat'i. Why is it qat'i? Because it's in, firstly it's in your fitrah. That is not the position of only Ibn Taymiyyah, some people think. That's actually a Sunni position. That it's in our fitrah to believe in Allah. So. Al hawasul khamsa, the questioner asks, the five senses, if you limited yourself to the empirical senses, then you become an empiricist. You become an empiricist in the sense that you limit yourself and your knowledge of the universe to your five senses. But your knowledge of the universe is not limited to the five senses. Your knowledge of the universe also comes from the mutawatir mass transmission which informs you of Harrqu-Ada violation of the norms which are known as miracles your knowledge of the universe is also from the mind your knowledge of the universe is also from the Quran and divine revelation so you have other sources of knowledge if you limit yourself to the five senses this is a mistake in epistemology you need to revise your epistemology
1: now ask the next question from someone's text. They said that what arguments does the Qur'an, does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Ta-Ala, present for the existence of God? So in the Qur'an you have numerous
0: arguments. One of the arguments, for instance, in Surah Al-Dahar, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, oh. This is just one, what is known as Istifham Inkari, a rhetorical question. Has even a moment come upon the human being where he was something non existent? The answer is yes. There was not a moment, there were epochs of time, and before time even existed, humankind did not exist. What does that mean? That you were non existent. When you were non existent, did you choose yourself to come into existence? The answer is no. So someone willed for you to come into existence. So that's just one verse of the Qur'an. Like this, you have numerous verses. in فِي al nahari In verses which mention in, what, uh, in the creation of the heavens and the earth and the differing of the night and the day, the signs, ayat, there are signs for whom those who think, so, throughout the Qur'an, you have various types of arguments. If there were a God, a deity in the heavens and the earth, other than Allah, the heavens and the earth would be in chaos. So, you read and study the Qur'an, you will find various types of arguments. Do you want to go
1: to next? Uh,
2: one? You mentioned us as the acquisition of the action. The Maturidis call this Ihtiraal. Um, is there any difference between the two? If there is
0: no difference, why, why was there two phrases apart? Uh, the kasp, The wording cusp is from the Qur'an. So the Ash'aris chose the wording from the Qur'an. Uh, when you study the Ash'ari school in more depth, you'll realize they are the closest or they are in fact upon the Qur'an and Sunnah, the most than any other group. The Maturidis, they chose a different word because of their regional locations. There are some jargons, istilah, that may differ, but it's just a regional thing. They lived in Mawara'an Nahar, and they had their own jargon. The Ash'aris were embattling numerous groups, the Mu'tazila, the Qadariya, the Jabariya, in Baghdad. Because Baghdad was a place of fitna. Even in the time of Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, before he started his da'wah, they mentioned that Baghdad had so many and tribulation, even today. So when the Ash'aris were embattling these different groups, they developed their kalam more than the Maturidis. So the Ash'ari kalam
1: is more developed. I've got a question somebody's asked. Is there a simple way to understand God's existence without so much philosophy and logic? Yes, there is. The
0: old woman, she was asked, why do you believe in God? She says, when I cook my pot every day and I stir the contents, I see the contents turn because I'm turning the contents. And then when I look at the sky and I see the sun and the sun rising and the sun setting and the phases of the moon throughout the month and the stars and the constellations changing every three months I know someone is rotating the universe. So I believe in a God. And that is the iman of the old women and that is what Imam Fakhruddin al razi meant. Oh Allah, give me death on the iman of the old woman, meaning in yaqeen, in certainty.
1: Final question because, apologies, we have to recite Salat al-Isha shortly, so the final question from um, Prophet Masood.
2: So uh, this one says, how is the belief in the mujadid that is sent every century different to the Shia belief of Imam And I just want to add something else uh, you yeah. mentioned consider. You mentioned uh, Speaker's Corner, a lot of the uh, dais there, they tend to use ashari Kalam to deal with Christians and atheists, whilst they are very critical of it at the same time.
0: Deal with that so there's two things here one was the first one was with regard to mujaddid, al- imam. mujaddid. how is the concept of mujaddid different to imama of the shia mujaddid is not ma'sum number 1 number two mujaddid is not one there can be numerous mujaddidin in various places thirdly in believing a specific person is a Mujaddid is not a tenet of our faith. With the Shia, they believe Allah is obliged to send down Imams. And they believe in the specific Imams that they designate. This is why you have the branches. The Zaydis believe in different Imams. The Ismailiyah believe in different Imams. The Twelvers believe in different Imams. And then they do takfir of one another, they declare one another as unbelievers with regard to Hyde Park I believe some of the du'at in Hyde Park have become ashari at least I have it from a good source at least 30 percent of them have become ashari's who haven't come out the closet I'm advising them come out the closet join the Jamhur of the Muslims and the ashari's from you can avoid the label Ash'ari, I mean Ahl-Sunnah-Wal-Jama'ah The Salaf, from the as salaf The Ash'aris were just a continuation of that tradition In the form of Al-Imam Al-Bayhaqi, Ibn Hajar You know all the names, all these names They were what? A continuation of the way of as salaf So hide, park, lads, come back to the Ash'ari way and those who are you in, in the cupboard, in the closet, come
1: out of your closet. Jazakum Allah Apologies, we have to finish because Salah Al-Isha. I would just like to thank our honourable guest, Sidi Asrar for his, mashallah excellent explanation. And also, all of the hard work he does. It's very difficult being at the front, especially teaching Islam. There's lots of people that don't like us for various different reasons. Even within our own communities, Allah give him the ability to do more, inshallah, work for Ahlul Sunnah al-Jama'at.